Future Sense is a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name, broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Hosted by Nick Jeans and well-known international futurist Steve McDonald, Future Sense provides a fresh, deep analysis of global trends and emergent technologies. How can we identify the layers of growth, personally, socially, and globally? What are the signs missed, the truths being denied? Science, history, politics, psychology, ancient civilizations, alien contact, the new psychedelic revolution, cryptocurrency, and other disruptive and distributed technologies, and much more. This is Future Sense. You should do Future Sense here on Bay FM, through Bay FM, and on podcast via futuresense.it or your usual platform, or possibly you are listening through the bayfm.org website here with myself, Nick Jeans, with Steve McDonald, my co-host, and our special guest this week, Mitch Schultz, the Texan elf, going back to Texas tomorrow. Yes, we're going to talk about a few other little pieces today that have drawn our attention to some positive news. Yeah, some positive news about developments in manufacturing and 3D printing. And uh, i got to say, when we were watching that American Factory movie, you know, and seeing all the, the Americans in particular being so unhappy about the hours, the low pay, and, you know, just being generally unhappy, unhappy at work, it kept screaming out to me, like, you know, why are we still making people do this kind of stuff when we've got robotics for example that could do this production line kind of work and then of course towards the end of the documentary that was exactly what they were doing in china was uh, introducing robotics well and and in the american factory um that's where they were filling it out exactly we're getting rid of these american workers you know we're gonna we can now Mm. make this um very easy and just put in a robot yeah you know? yeah of course the the, the, um, the unspoken thing there is what to do with the workers what and, to do and next? there's, there's yeah. a huge need there for governments to plan for these sorts of things and to make provision for their exit from those jobs and retraining and you know replacement into uh, some Goodness. other kind of uh, caring about the little people yeah, yeah. there's an idea know, if we could get our governments to stop fighting and start paying attention mm. a little bit more to the people that would be great absolutely <laughs> and uh, and that's you know one of the challenges we face uh, large scale at the moment is the rapid change that's going on in society and the the sort of inward focus of politicians and governments at the moment mm-hmm. there it's kind of like they've taken their eye off the ball isn't it Anyway, there's a great article uh, that I've got in front of me here about 3D printing. It's from nature.com, and it's talking about how 3D printing is becoming faster and producing larger products, and scientists are coming up with innovative ways to print and are creating stronger materials, sometimes mixing multiple materials in the same product, so uh, it's becoming a lot more capable. Uh, in this, there's a couple of factories in the U.S. or research organisations in the U.S. that they're highlighting. Uh, one is in South Carolina, where they're using a 3D printing technique referred to as additive manufacturing, yes. because instead of chopping or milling a shape out of a larger block or casting molten metal in a mould, it involves building objects from the bottom up. This itself is quite a big change. Just this piece of that. Yeah. Just that thinking. Yeah, just yeah, that thinking. It is, and, and you know, we've had machines called CMC machines for many, many years. I can remember seeing one for the first time back in the '80s, where you would put a block of metal in the machine uh, together with a, a computer-based pattern, and the machine would basically carve whatever you wanted out of the metal block. And uh, the guy that showed me the machine back then was saying that, you know, if if you wanted to, you could reproduce pretty much anything like car parts or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so the machi- machines were being very carefully controlled because they could easily be used to sort of uh, defy patents and those mm-hmm. sorts of things to make car parts and, and et cetera. Anyway, um, the, the uh, technology has gone much, much further than that. And... Uh, 
they're talking the advantages of this new technology that I started describing is that it it includes uh, it creates less waste and it has the ability to print custom designs such as intricate lattice structures that yeah. are otherwise very very hard to create. And what's also interesting is they're using uh, different frequencies of light together with resin to help create these things. And so uh, at 3D Systems in Rock Hill, South Carolina, they've developed a way to print light-sensitive resin up to 100 times faster than conventional printers. And it uses a stage submerged in a vat of resin and a digital projector shines a pre-programmed image up at the stage through a transparent window in the floor of the vat. So, so isn't that interesting? It's like a holographic kind of a setup. Mm. Uh, the light cures an entire resin layer at once. And, uh, and they, at this particular lab, they've made an advance on that technology by making the window at the bottom of the vat permeable to oxygen, which is really interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah, yeah it, and this uh, kills the curing reaction and creates a thin buffer layer or dead zone just above the window surface so that the resin doesn't stick to the bottom of the vat each <laughs> time a layer is printed. Uh, and then the stage, when they, they're saying a stage, it's like a, a little platform that yeah. sort of descends down onto the resin and then the uh, whatever's being printed is attached to the stage and then they pull that up and it gradually pulls the, the completed part of whatever it is up through the liquid and, and as it's pulling it up it's forming new parts of it so it's kind of like a very interesting continual process that's the things printed as it's being pulled up out of the resin quite fascinating and uh, another report from uh, the University of Michigan who are also working on this kind of technology that where they have a, a printer that inhibits the reactions using this same kind of resin based process uh, by using a second lamp emitting a different wavelength of light and I find this quite fascinating that we're mm, playing around with different wavelengths yeah. of light here uh, I think there's a lot of promise in that and by varying the ratio of the strength of two different light sources they can control the thickness of the photo inhibited zone allowing the creation of more complicated patterns such as surfaced, surfaces embossed with seals or logos and those sorts of things very, very interesting. Well, and just thinking about what the impact will be down the road on this, and we're talking about localization and, yep. and manufacturing and things coming back to the local level. Imagine what happens when we can start producing building materials, car parts, any number of different objects that get shipped around the world and use petrol and any mm. number of things. Mm. Uh, we just download the program, go ahead and print it at your local place, and, and you're good to go. I know. Uh, it's I not know. that simple, but the, you know, there's something that's mm. going to be profound in the near future about this new technology. Yeah, yeah. extremely disruptive, though. Mm -hmm. like, you know, when you think about the setup that we have at the moment and all the companies who own all the intellectual property and the patents. And intellectual and property. And <laughs> Explain that one to me, would you? <laughs> it's, it's all got to change. Yeah. Put, your yeah. flag, put your flag in the intellectual <laughs> property. It's mine. Right. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, in the same, uh, same article, uh, the world's first 3D printed concrete pedestrian bridge was made by researchers at the Institute of Advanced Architecture of Catalonia in wow. Barcelona, hmm. in Spain, and installed in a park in Alcobendas near Madrid in 2016. And uh, features that sort of lattice structure that you're talking about, a part of that, that sort of technology. Mm. But I've also seen um, that there is uh, recently, I haven't got it in front of me here, some, uh, the printing of, of uh, hempcrete buildings. Uh, oh, yes. Yes, which is pretty amazing, especially in this era where um, accommodation is becoming very hard to find, very inappropriate for many people and out of out of the uh, purview of uh, economics for, for many of us. But the idea that we can actually print 
um, you know, affordable housing in some ways pretty amazing. Imagine if Gaudi would have had the 3D Gaudi, printer. Yeah. You talk about Barcelona. Talk about Barcelona. We, would have been, we would have been done with that a long time ago, yeah. Although that still, is, still isn't <laughs> still, finished. It's still not finished. It's still not finished. Still finished. Yeah, it's, it's a true piece of art. It's never finished. It's beautiful, yes. <laughs> Interesting. I, I know somebody who stayed in a hempcrete building, oh. uh, which has uh, set up a, as an Airbnb just recently. Never been the same since. Here in this area, yeah. They said it was very interesting. Had a, had an interesting vibe to it. Uh, it was it was I think hempcrete and wood, and uh, mm. what the my friend actually said was that they felt like they were staying in a temple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. yeah. It's been interesting. Beautiful, very. Yeah. So, um, robotics, automation, and three D printing certainly I think uh, are the, the ways of the future. And as you said, Mitch, the relocalization of mm. these things is I think inevitable. Yeah. It just makes sense, uh, and particularly in light of what we've been saying about government and the problems with government that are emerging, and the need to create resilient communities that are self-sufficient in many ways. Because um, what what I'm sure we will continue to see, and we're already seeing, is the breakdown of federal government level infrastructure and right. and spending on that infrastructure. I mean, we've gone through this huge process of privatisation mm. globally where the governments have found that they can't afford to keep maintaining this stuff, so they have to privatise it. And uh, and now, of course, that privatisation is changing as well in many cases because it's not commercially viable for companies to maintain infrastructure in the same way that the government used to, where mm. they would just spend money without worrying so much about efficiency. And now companies that are trying to make money out of it are, um, are letting things go and we're, we're seeing that here in Australia in things like the electricity grids and yeah. ma- maintenance of poles and wires and those sorts of mm. things. Movement to solar power, which means that people are drawing their own power from the sun and they're not necessarily using the grid so much. You potentially exchange it with one another house to household. That's that's coming online in some places, experimented, being experimented with. Exactly. All these sorts of things uh, are going to change the way that we live and the way that we govern ourselves and, and they need a lot of planning at all levels and they also need uh, a lot of change management and, and quite uh, would definitely retraining of a lot of people who might find themselves without a job. Mm. Yeah. As you're speaking, I'm thinking though, with regards to all the old uh, manufacturing industries of our of our countries, as they start to fall apart, fail, and just aren't viable anymore, and this kind of technology we're talking about here, robotics, 3D printing, and the like, um, surely locally this will enable some uh, employment in local and regional areas for for the very things of getting things from A to B and doing yeah. necessary work. So there's a you know that by nature the tech technology is helpful in creating more localised employment. Yeah, I I think a key issue that's often not spoken about is that it ought to make things a lot cheaper. When you don't have to have something made in a factory across the other side of the world and shipped through a supply chain to to buy locally, even though a lot of those things are pretty cheap, uh, when those things are made locally, then potentially they're going to be a lot cheaper. So the cost of living is going to be far less people may not have to work as much as they do say, at the moment. We may not have to work as much. Well, that's, that's where it's headed. You yeah. know, we, we're yeah. going to have a lot more free time and it's going to be a lot cheaper to live. You know, that's, that's essentially where things mm. are headed. We can get out and connect with our neighbours and yeah. have conversations. Well, that was the dream of the Leisure Society in the 50s or so, uh, that whole idea that technology would, would create that uh, that leisure space for everybody. And of course, it's taken a long time to get, that, to get to that point, but clearly now we're maybe ready for exactly that. Right. Yeah, interesting. Just the last piece on the 3D reading it too. In California, there's a startup called Relativity Space in Los Angeles. It says it's constructing a nearly fully 3D printed rocket. The rocket is designed to lift 1,250 kilograms into low Earth orbit, and its first test launch is slated for 2021. 
Pretty Does this cool. mean that we can print our own village rocket once everything gets <laughs> localised? Absolutely. So we need more stuff in space right now above our Earth. Well, there is that. That's, that's another question, and we can probably all have different opinions about that, one way or the other. Um, we'll come back with some more good news shortly here on BFM. For all of you out there, strangers in a strange land, you're grokking future sense here on BFM. And uh, hello to all the listeners all around the world who are listening um, via the podcast or via our website or live as we are here in the Rainbow region of northern New South Wales. Um, with Steve McDonald, myself, Nick Jeans and Mitch Schultz. We're talking a little bit about 3D printing, but 4D printing. Yeah, I know, 4D printing. I'd never <laughs> heard of that before, but uh, that refers to 3D printed objects that also have the ability to perform some mechanical action, mm. like, for example, artificial muscles, uh, things that can change over time, which is where 4D comes mm. in. Uh, what do we got here? California Institute of Technology in Pasadena reported printing a submarine that propels itself forward using paddles that snap backwards when placed in warm water. So obviously responding to the warm Ooh. water there. This work could lead to micro robots that can explore the oceans autonomously. Um, and uh, other applications, they're talking about um, 3D printed lattice structures filled with a liquid that changes stiffness in response to a magnetic field, which could perhaps be used to help car seats stiffen on impact. Hmm. Uh, quite fascinating. Uh, what else? Um, so it says here, perhaps the most ambitious example of 4D printing is matter that not only moves but is alive. Hmm. Currently, techniques for such bioprinting can print tissue such as human skin that is suitable for lab research as well as patches of tissue for livers and other organs that have been successfully implanted in rats. But such techniques are still far from ready to integrate into a human body. Researchers dream of printing fully functioning organs that could alleviate long wait lists for organ donors. Mm. But uh, this uh, professor they're, they're quoting here feels that they're probably a decade away from that yet. But yeah. uh, how interesting. A decade is not that long for that kind of technology. On the other hand, though, sort of replacement of organic, mechanical, movable parts, sophisticated aspects of biology that can actually be replaced in that way. Pretty extraordinary. Yeah, fascinating. Hey? The bionic Mitch is coming. But you still love animals, Mitch, though. I do. The, nat the, nat the natural life. And to, and to stay yeah. on this, uh, you know, the good news, because mm. so much of this stuff here is can be a little heavy at times, mm. but uh, I've been watching and, and see, loving these stories about other species helping sp other species, and we've seen this in the wildfires here in Australia recently. Mm. Uh, but something that just popped up was an orangutan reaching out to help pull a man out of a river with snake-infested waters in Borneo. Mm. Wow. Uh, and I just love seeing these little stories. There was another mm. one about a, a whale researcher mm. off, off the Cook Islands, I think, last year. Yeah, Nan Halza. Yeah. Uh, they came and warned her that there was a tiger shark in the area. That's right. And tried to push her up and, and get her to safety. And Humpback whale played with for 10 minutes and kept on uh, bringing her in and lifting her out of the ocean with its massive head. And over 10 minutes it followed, Halza swam calmly around the whale as it nudged her with its head, bumped her with its belly and swiped at her with its powerful pectoral fins. She didn't know what was going on, but actually... Uh, the, the way I was protecting it from this the shark. Right. Incredible. And I guess these orangutans, um, one of their biggest predators are these poisonous snakes that are in these rivers. And mm. this man was actually clearing out snakes so people could come down. Oh, okay. The orangutan comes to the edge of the water and reaches his hand out to help pull him out. Wow. wow. Um, a little frightened, I think, the man was, but uh, <laughs> because they're not sure how they're going to respond or what's going on. But I think this is a common thing. And mm. uh, just keep that in mind when you see another mm. animal or species in need. Well, um, I remember I told you guys... Love. Off air a number of years ago, uh, some some of the cetacean folk, whale and dolphin, uh, 
people in in my world at that time still um, had an experience uh, in Hawaii, I think on the Bee Island, where they were swimming with dolphins, a number of them, and there was a woman who kept on being sort of nudged quite strongly by a male dolphin coming in and butting her in the in the gut somewhere over and over again. She went, this is really weird, like we swim with these dolphins, what are they doing? So she got out of the water and decided there was something to it, went to a doctor and found a massive tumour wow. right there where the dolphin had clearly sonared her and discovered the tumour was pointing to it. Yeah, and uh, we are all connected, bottom line. That's it. All we creatures, are. Some great great examples during the fires here in Australia yes. too of animals coming to humans to, to get water and uh, yeah. and animals helping other animals too. Getting uh, them down into their burrows yeah, and, and yeah, things. Yeah, sharing their the burrows. Yeah. Really, really interesting stuff. Yeah. If you've got any examples of that, you can text in really quickly. You've got a few minutes before the end of the show on zero four three seven three four triple one nine. But I think, it, you know, to me, the bigger picture of this is we, we have been, most of us, most of society, especially in, in layer five that we talk about you know, through Claire W. Graves' work and the dominance of that layer, uh, a great deal of disconnection has occurred for most people in our modern societies from the native world, from the natural world, from other creatures. It would seem that that's sort of, that's shifting by the very in-your-face nature of nature now uh, with all the, you know, the fires and the floods and the famines and the droughts and so on that are occurring that uh, creatures are, uh, are more seen, more available, and there's there's more contact available to us, and we are beginning to see it more. More of us well, are seeing it more often. Humans mm. are starting to realize Feel that uh, we are not separate from nature. We still very much are nature and part yes. of nature, and um, I think we can uh, take some signs and some learning from our um, friends on the planet. Mm. You're resonating right now on Future Sense with Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans. In the last few minutes here of Future Sense this morning, and we've got a couple of other little pieces we'd like to bring attention to. In this good news segment, uh, in Australian First, a native title group in Western Australia has been awarded both native title recognition and a $450 million economic package comprising cash and assets to empower traditional owners. That's a first, isn't it? It is a first mm-hmm. that those two things have happened at the same time, yeah. yeah. So the Yamachi Nation claim covers a landmass of nearly 48,000 square kilometres in WA's Midwest, and it's just uh, it's around uh, the area of Kalbarri, which is just south of Northwest Cape in the sort of centre of the Western Australian coast there. Yeah. And um, the this ABC News article said Friday's determination was made in an emotional on-country federal court hearing in Geraldton, 400 kilometres north of Perth, where the traditional owners met with Justice Deborah Mortimer. And uh, as I said, the first time both native title recognition and a land use agreement had been determined simultaneously. Mm. And uh, this this is quite extraordinary. And I can only hope that uh, there is sufficient expertise um, gathered around to help uh, that area be developed using those assets and mm. funds that are being granted you know, in an effective mm. way that's going to serve the traditional people there. It includes a cash component, the transfer of commercial land to the Yamachi Nation, joint ventures, tourism opportunities and access to housing uh, properties for sale, leasing or development. Uh, revenue streams also from mining, I guess it might be contentious here and there, and from leasing of the sale of land located uh, in an industrial state there as well, as well as strategic Aboriginal water reserve for use, for lease or for trade. So it seems to be quite comprehensive on the, on the, on, at first glance, isn't it? It does, yeah, and, and uh, it's been a long time coming. The claim was started in 1996, mm. uh, and wow. uh, the, the whole process was described by the federal court as long and challenging for various reasons, uh, which included some overlapping claims. 
but uh, we, they finally got there and congratulations mm-hmm. to everyone involved with that whole process. It's really good to see. And, it, you know, I, I was kind of scratching my head a little because it's, it's not characteristic of current government attitudes. But right. when you look at the fact that it's been coming since 1996, that kind of explains it. Yes. Yeah. So that, that's wonderful. Yeah. And in other good news this morning, uh, we've reported previously about changes to the law in the Australian Capital Territory mm. around the possession and use of cannabis. Yeah. And uh, those laws have now come into effect there. And a, a very interesting uh, groundbreaking change for Australia because essentially what they've done is they've uh, legalised recreational cannabis use and the growing of two plants per person, which runs counter to uh, federal laws. And uh, it, it, so it puts us in a similar situation to the... Um, various states in the United States mm. of America that have had this conflict between federal and state law, but nevertheless in the US it's mm. it's managed to push ahead, so hopefully the same will happen here. And like you, you can't, you can grow two plants, but you can't give any of it away to anybody. That's illegal. No, and you can't sell seeds either. No, really. that's so, right. So, so it's pretty it's, limited. I mean, it's, in it's some ways... Perfect. It's not, it's not perfect. perfect. In some ways you could say it, it, could, it could potentially, you know, criminalise other kinds of behaviour anyway. Well, it could do. Another one of the conflicts is that in the ACT, it's the federal police who are the local police there, and of course they have to decide, I guess, whether to enforce federal law or, or the ACT law. Right. So, not perfect, but nonetheless, uh, let's hope it's the, the thin edge of a, a, the wedge in mm. sort of the uh, end of the drug war here in Australia. Mm. And uh, in related news, Melbourne this weekend just gone has seen the opening of its first cannabis dispensary, yeah. which they're hoping will be the first of many. So progress uh, in the war on drugs, mm. which is good news. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, with that, of course, we've got a couple of showings we uh, talk about where uh, you'll, you'll be a guest speaker on the panels down below here in the, uh, in the Barn Theatre coming up, two films on uh, medicinal uh, psychedelics, uh, which we talk about often on this show. And, of course, Mitch was very involved with all of us here on uh, the From Shock to Awe film, which we showed around Australia last year. Uh, there's two coming up, one on the 27th uh, of this month. Um, what's that one about? Two movies that are being put on by Entheogenesis Australis, the wonderful community-based organisation from Victoria, which incidentally was very instrumental in the formation of our first research organisation, PRISM, Psychedelic Research in Science and Medicine, here back in 2010-2011. Uh, then they are screening two movies, The Journeys to the Edge of Consciousness, which features uh, the, the writings of Timothy Leary, Aldous Huxley and Alan Watts. Mm which uh, looks like a, a phil- philosophical movie. And then another movie, which I haven't seen yet, called Icarus, yeah. uh, which is clearly about plant medicines, going by the name. And then the second uh, date that you mentioned, the 7th of March, where we are screening The Trip of Compassion, which is uh, a documentary about the is- Israel-based MDMA research uh, from uh, a few years back, which yeah. I, I, it's actually the only movie out of those three that I've seen, and it's uh, its a very good record of the early research that was done mm. in the breakthroughs. And it does actually show footage from within the psychedelic It, it does, yeah, too. and yeah. It, it is a little confronting, I must say, uh, at points, and I, I would issue a, a trigger warning for anybody who might suffer from PTSD around okay. that Trip of Compassion movie, yet it's, mm. it's uh, a very interesting record of, of the research, for mm. sure. That's it for the show. I think we'll finish up there. Thanks to Mitch Schultz, Texan Elf, and uh, God bless. And you, you got a bit of a goodbye to, to the official Texan goodbye to the Australia. Official, official. I think the only thing I'd like to say is it's always great to come to Australia. I want to thank my uh, Australian brothers and sisters for being so welcoming and warm. And I will be back soon. Yeah. Much love. Wonderful. Much love, indeed. Thanks, Steve. And um, thanks, thanks to... Me.
all of us here and we will uh, we will be with you next week monday from 9 to 11 as i said a few times today you can check us out on bayfm.org the the full show with music and so forth uh, in within a couple of hours but if you want to get the edited podcast within a couple of days go to futuresense.it or to your platform that you use anyway we'll be with you next week You've been listening to Future Sense, a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Future Sense is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. The future is here now. It's just not evenly distributed.